Hello and welcome to Playback Daily. It's Thursday the 8th of February. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what's coming up on the show. Well, it, it's fascinating. The, the, the published research suggests that approximately half of all pet caregivers, dog and cat caregivers, are sleeping with their dogs and or their cats in bed. But I would say have a go with the flipping and remember as well, when it comes to pancakes, the first one or two, in my experience, aren't always the best ones. It's the ones that come later on when you're into the swing of it and all of the temperatures are working and you've got your pan primed properly. They still believe that there is a chance uh, that Madeleine is still alive. Um, For the Germans, this is a murder investigation. Dublin Bus launched a new campaign today to tackle the gender imbalance and double the number of female drivers. Kean McCormack reported from Conningham Road Bus Garage on Morning Ireland this morning. Dublin Bus is launching what it calls the More Manoa Female Recruitment Drive. Now that campaign aims uh, to double the number of women drivers in Dublin Bus and that will be done through a number of open days next month and we'll be getting more details of that in a few moments. Also we'll hear from Dublin Bus driver Tina Hearn who's been recently uh, made an inspector but first CEO of Dublin Bus Billy Han, you're joining us here this morning. Briefly give me a breakdown of that campaign and of course how it will work. Good morning, Keen. It's great to be here in Cunningham Road with the Dublin Bus Crew, where we are launching our More Manaw driver recruitment campaign, where you're correct, we're looking to double the number of female drivers in our organisation over the next two to three years. And part of that campaign is going to be, we're going to run a number of open days in um, March, April and May, where we will invite female um, participants down to our depot in Fisbury, give them an opportunity to drive a bus to see what it's like, give them an opportunity to talk to some of our drivers, talk to our mentors, talk to our instructors and get a good feeling about what it's actually like to be a bus driver. Now, back in October, you posted on LinkedIn, on social media, that 5.4% of Dublin bus drivers were female. Today, that percentage is 6.1%. In real terms, we've mentioned the figures already, 193 of Dublin buses are driven by women. Uh, over 3,100 are driven by men. Uh, you had a similar campaign in October, and from the figures given to me from Dublin bus, you've hired maybe about 14 more female drivers. So, what What's going wrong for you? Yeah, so since that campaign in 2019, we've actually doubled the amount of female drivers. So it has been very, very positive. Now, it was truncated by the period of the pandemic, so that did um, provide some issues for us. But we have done some research recently, and one of the major findings of that research has been that there's a perception out there that driving a bus is a man's job, and that driving a bus is actually difficult. Part of the open days is actually to bring women down to the depot, allow them to drive the bus, talk to our women drivers, and actually realise that it's not a man's job, that a woman can actually do this job equally as well as a man and that actually driving a bus is not as difficult as they might think. But look, you look at the figures and when you look at Dublin Bus, one in ten of each of your worker uh, of your workers are women. 8.3% of your entire workforce are women. It's 342 women working here compared to 3,780 men. You have 170 mechanics. None of those are women. And as we've just been discussing, 6% of your drivers are women. So why can't you attract women to Dublin bus? And again, you had a similar campaign in October. Well, on the positive side, our our gender pay gap report, which came out last week, 
has um, we're 4.1% in favour of women. So that's really, really positive. But we're absolutely trying to redress that issue and redress that balance of um, female versus male in the organisation, which is why we're using this campaign at the moment. And we will push this campaign hard to try and address that balance over time. Now, you've surveyed a 1,000 plus women uh, for research which has been published as part of today's launch. Do you get any insights there from that research why women don't go for jobs in Dublin bus? Yeah, the, the biggest part of it is really what I said earlier. It's, it's that perception that it's actually a man's job and that it's a difficult job to do. And as I said, this campaign and particularly the open days will feed into, you know, overturning that particular perception that's out there and allowing women to go down, as I said, test drive the bus and get to actually realise that perception is incorrect because it, it is really only a perception, it's not a reality. Joined here as well by Dublin bus driver and trainer Tina Ahern. Tina, you've been with Dublin bus for 25 years. Uh, you're just becoming an inspector now. Why do you think women don't apply in great numbers for jobs with Dublin bus? Hi, Cian. I think there's a bit of a misconception that uh, they can't do it. And I'm here to tell them that they actually can. I mean, I'm only five foot one and a half. If I can drive a bus, anybody can. The bus is very easy to drive. You get fantastic training in the driving school. You're brought up there for six weeks, four weeks in tr driving and two weeks, then you're doing um, classroom work. In that time, you're put through the uh, driving um, aspect of it. You're put through your RSA driving test. By the end of your test, you're, you're 100% be able to drive a bus, 100%. All the buses are automatic very easy to drive. Well, look, looking at the figures, uh, we see 90% of people working here are men. What's your personal experience of that? OK, I started back here in 1999 and from the get-go, from the day I walked in the door, all of the men have treated me very equally, very loyal. And they're like, they treat you like your daughter, their wives, their, their partners. There's no difference between a man and a woman. I don't say those men drivers and female drivers. We're all just bus drivers. Just I've finally, very quickly, uh, for people listening to this who may be considering this as an employment option, uh, how would you advise them to follow in your footsteps? If you're even considering that as a female, I would say just come down, log on to www.dublinbus.ie, register your interest, come along to the open days. We'll give it a chance to have a spin in the bus that day with just other females. Please give it a go if you're thinking about it. You'll love it. Bus Inspector Tina Ahern and CEO of Dublin Bus, Billy Han. Thanks for having us here at a wet and cold Cunningham Road garage this morning. Mary, more information as you've just been hearing there about becoming a bus driver and a more Manoa female recruitment drive can be gotten from dublinbus.ie. Kian McCormack's report on Morning Ireland. Sticking with the theme of transport, yesterday we heard of a new plan to restrict through traffic in Dublin City. The draft city transport plan would see part of the quays closed to motorists as well as other parts of the city centre. Two city councillors with opposing views gave their thoughts to Morning Ireland, Labour councillor Dara Moriarty and first independent councillor Neil Ring. Well, it's just another amazing example on you of this lack of joined up thinking within Dublin City Council and in this whole transport uh, policy that we have. Like with the NTA, the NRA, Dublin bus, nobody seems to be talking to another. Dublin City Council seems to be hell-bent on getting private motorists out of the city. Nobody's looking at what's that doing to the businesses in the city. And this, instead of going to the city centre, you have to go... You, 
you, you can't go through, you can only go to. In, in other words, if you want to go to, for example, a constituent of mine who wants to bring its child over to the new hospital in James Street, isn't allowed to go through the city centre. It's just, it's, it's really an example of nobody thinking. And I know, I know four fifths of people are saying, this is wonderful. That's apple pie and motherhood. We'd all love to be out there in a, in a lovely plaza, cycling around, walking around. But unfortunately, that's not the reality. The reality is motorists. Nobody gets into a car. I didn't get into my car this morning willingly and say, I really want to use my car to get into work. I just had to do that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's lashing rain. I couldn't use my bike. It's, it's, there's no public transport directly to where I work. So so, uh, unless we have the facilities, we're putting literally the cart before the horse in terms of transport. So, Dara Moriarty, you heard what Niall Ring said there. Apple pie. I mean, th- this is fantasy land, the reality for people who want to get across town to the hospital, who need to get to the job and public transport doesn't allow them to. Uh, good morning, Olia. Um Look, I think I think the the research that's being carried out by Dublin City Council is is very clear on this. Six and ten cars that are in our city centre core, and we're not talking about all of Dublin here. We're talking about a very small area, condensed area of Dublin City Centre. Six and ten cars that are in that area are not actually going to a destination in the city centre. They're trying to get through it to use it as a cut through to somewhere else. There are numerous other alternative routes that people could take rather than clogging up our, our, our city centre streets. I think the keys, for example, haven't worked for decades. And us as Dublin City Councillors, we set the ambitious target of trying to reduce city centre traffic by 40% by 2028. If you want to set those ambitious targets, we have to enact actions like this. We have to take decisive action like this to give more priority to public transport, to give more priority to buses, to taxis, to cyclists, to walkers. This is not about turning people away from our city centre. These plans, in my view, will actually achieve the opposite of that. This is about making our city centre a place that people want to spend time in. It's about people who live in our city, their air quality, their quality of life. It's about people who want to come to town and spend time here. And these plans are what is needed to try and unblock the city of the current traffic jams are facing. Okay, let's hear from uh, a business person who's been affected by this in terms of pedestrianisation and then I'm going to come back to uh, both of you with a few more questions. So you remember uh, Capel Street on the north side of uh, Dublin City was pedestrianised back in May 2022 and our reporter Esna Dodd has been speaking to Doc Hausmans, owner of the Dublin City Comics Shop that's on Capel Street about how his business has been getting on since. We, myself and three other business owners off the street, we got a, a short poll together, um, just a little opinion thing to see what people wanted changed or what people wanted actually done with pedestrianisation of the street. We got all 250 businesses in the area to, to fill it out and then went to the government with our concerns. And uh, most of it fell on deaf ears, like it wasn't really paid too much attention to because it seemed like most of it was already decided at that point. And at that point, before it had been implemented, what were your concerns with pedestrianisation? Um, generally about parking, um, about access. Uh, we have a lot of customers who are on the spectrum. So we had a, a very handy service of basically people could park outside the, the business uh, parents and they could let their children go into the shop without supervision. So they had that degree of autonomy, which was amazing for them for the development. We also had a, a pickup and drop off spot because we get an awful lot of trade-ins, like people emptying out their attics full of comics and toys. That's now become a lot more difficult. Um, for other businesses on the street, I know there's a couple of uh, businesses that deal with furniture, 
and for them it's been incredibly difficult getting deliveries in because we can now only get deliveries up till 11 o'clock in the morning whereas before they had access around the clock so that's the experience of pedestrianisation, according to Doc Housemans from the Dublin City Comic Shop on Capel Street. Do you think, Dara Moriarty, that's a concern that many other retailers in Dublin City uh, will have, that it's just going to put people off if they can't? For instance, if you've got a load of shopping coming out of town, you know, maybe, maybe you want uh, to be able to park close by and carry, not have to carry your shopping a big long distance. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think that business example is 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 actually speaking in favour of trying to get the cut through traffic that goes through our city centre rather than to our city centre off the streets. If we want cars and if we want people who are travelling as a, as a destination in the city centre to 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 not be stuck in traffic, to not be stuck in, in, in ram traffic on the keys and actually be able to get in and use our city centre properly to spend time there, to use the shops, to, to eat in the restaurants, to, mm-hmm. to, to spend time in the bars, we need to get the traffic that is cutting through Dublin. Six in ten cars are actually cutting through Dublin to go somewhere else off the streets. I think alleviating those pressures and giving more priority to the people who want to spend time in our city will actually be a huge benefit to our city centre. So it's not about it's not about those cars who want to get into town. It's not about stopping them. It's about stopping the cars who are trying to cut through town. There will always be people okay. who travel by car. We need to make sure there's good car access for people who live in the city, people who work in the city and people who want to shop and spend time there. So how do you answer? No, and by the way, Neil, I, I'm sorry, I've been mispronouncing your name. It's Neil. No apologies for that. Uh, how do you answer that? That Actually, this is about getting people into town, that it's going to give the city, as Eamon Ryan said yesterday, a much needed lift. And we all know poor old Dublin City Centre. I mean, it's been making the news for all the wrong reasons lately. It's a sad place to be a lot of the time. It is. And, and Doc's uh, uh, anecdote about Cable Street is 100% correct. And what's that? What is that? What, what, what really... It disturbs me is that everyone's talking about the six and ten who are going through the city. I mean, if you're going from A to B, just because you're going through the city doesn't make, doesn't mean you're, you have to be banned from it. I mean, you're going to work, you're going to a hospital, you're going to visit somebody. And and this idea of saying you go around the city, that's all very well. But I thought we had a climate crisis. And and if if people are go, staying in their car for an extra half hour, emitting mm-hmm. fossil fuels, because as we see, Tesla, Ford, etc., are now ramping down on the number of electronic vehicles, and and we have that in, in our own government, okay. the three and a half thousand grant was done away with. So it's all these mixed messages and no joint okay. thinking. And a final Honestly, quick question for each of you, because a point has also been made that if you get rid of cars, that you you there's a safety issue because you lose eyes on the street. Is that a concern of yours, Neil? And how do you answer that, Dara? Neil first. Well, it, well, it's a very good point, and it's something I hadn't really thought thought about too much. My my main concern is that this relentless drive to so pardon the pun against the motorist just has to stop. We have to look at the environment. We have to look at businesses. We have to let Dublin survive, and that means getting letting people into Dublin and through Dublin. It's not a crime okay. to go from the north side to the south side, or even south side to the north side. That happens too. Indeed, Dara, how do you answer indeed. that point? No, look on the safety issue. I don't. I don't think the idea of of, of cars clogging up our streets, of of being bumper the bumper up and down the keys, up and down Pear Street, is actually a safe thing. I think if we if we can discourage cars in the city centre, encourage people to use public transport, encourage people who can to walk to cycle, that will actually be a huge benefit and make our roads safer for people who want to travel those ways. That's Labour councillor Dara Moriarty, and we heard independent councillor Neil Ring on Morning Ireland.
On the Oliver Callan Show, the host spoke to Mariana Spring, who's a disinformation and social media correspondent with the BBC. Your series is called, it's got a very snappy title, Why Do You Hate Me? Tell us about that. Yes, um, so I am, uh, because I kind of investigate basically everything horrible on social media and its real world consequences, um, I am one of the most trolled BBC reporters. So I receive a huge amount of online hate, um, uh, you know, far beyond legitimate criticism or people just airing their opinions, you know, nasty abuse threats and so on. And I decided with this series, I really wanted to understand more about the hate I receive and that other people are receiving on social media and how it works. And so what I've done is focus on five particularly extreme cases, extraordinary cases of online hate, um, tracking down impersonators, deep fakers, uh, conspiracy theorists, to just really answer that question of why. Why does this happen? What impact does it have? And is understanding and forgiveness possible? Because sometimes it can feel a little bit bleak in this kind of social media underbelly. Um, But to uncover light at the end of the tunnel feels like something that is important and perhaps good for everybody involved. And do you cover your own story? So kind of throughout it, it's almost like I'm learning more about my hate. And then uh, in the last episode, there's more about what it's all taught me around the hate I receive, um, the abuse I get. And and the other thing that's been important is um, the reason, the the best thing about being on social media for me, certainly, is all of the brilliant people that get in touch with me because they want me to investigate either their own experiences of, of harm on social media or content they've been spotting online. And so my inbox is in some ways a bit of a character, really. It's me diving into my inbox, kind of wading my way through the trolls to be able to investigate other people's cases and understand why this all happens. So your purpose is to find these people uh, and what motivates them? Exactly. And I think that question of why do people behave the way they do online? Because certainly for the people who are harmed by this kind of content, whether it's, you know, extreme trolling, whether it's people pretending to be someone else, whether it's... um, uh, conspiracy theories or very extreme disinformation. You know, the people harmed ask me that question all the time. Why? Why me? Why did this happen? Why did that person do that? I can't understand. Mm-hmm. And so I think by really trying to get to the bottom of why have you behaved in this way and certainly also then that idea of you know, remorse or, or forgiveness to some extent, people being able to turn around and say, oh, actually, I regret doing that or I'm really sorry I behaved in that way online. I hope that that is a kind of positive step forward because I really notice that when we take these kinds of conversations off social media, when they happen, you know, in our you know, in our homes or when we meet up with people or when we actually chat, they, it, you know, the possibility for, for nuance and understanding is, is just so much greater, whereas online we very quickly descend into this very polarised and often quite hateful environment, which is yeah. not very good for anyone. OK, so the, the first episode of your series, it covers the intriguing case of a woman called Julia. She created an Instagram account last year, I think it was, wasn't it? And it was simply yes. called I Am Madeline McCann. Yes, and I remember my inbox being just absolutely inundated with people saying, who is this? Why has this happened? Who's made this account? Um, She went super viral. It was exactly a year ago now um, for making this account. And, you know, she she had more than a million followers on Instagram. Her story was being shared all over TikTok with people commenting on it. And, you know, a combination of support, people saying, oh, maybe this is Madeleine McCann. And then, obviously, a lot of hate. She became a real lightning rod for online anger. Um, And, you know, this... It, it, it kind of took on a life of its own, really, and and, and she ended up on even on sort of Doctor Phil, the the show presented by the psychologist in America, you know, yeah. questioning her. Yeah, and I think she kind of couldn't quite believe the the, the heights that this had reached. Um, and then 
it kind of all came crashing down. A DNA test came back saying, actually, she was Polish. She was not Madeleine McCann. Um, she stepped back from the account. Um, and so I decided I wanted to understand what had happened here. How had this all unfolded? Did she have any regrets? What, was her, what were her motives? And so she spoke to me for the first time since this had all happened. And I think when you, you know, I traveled to meet her in Poland, which is where she lives with her with her cat. She's 22 years old now. She, um, you know, is, is she's doing well. She's um, studying, teaching. Um, and to enter her world, I guess, to really, you know, go to her flat. She loves playing the guitar. She's um, uh, very kind of musical. She loves singing. Um, to, to kind of meet her as a person and her to talk me through, particularly the kind of traumatic childhood in, in her case mm -hmm. that seemed to be the root of this behaviour where she was trying to fill in the gaps. She then associated herself with the McCann case. She she thought she recognised one of the e-fits of the suspects linked to the case, which she said she hadn't heard of um, because in Poland it was not quite as big of a story as, as it certainly was here in, in the UK. Yeah. Um, and she uh, and she kind of put two and two together and then it all spiraled. Um, and after getting in touch with the authorities and saying, maybe I am Madeleine McCann or I recognise the suspect, I, I have the rare eye abnormality that Madeleine McCann had, um, she decided that no one was listening to her and she posted on social media and that is her biggest regret. She you know, now really recognises she shouldn't have posted online. I think mainly because there's an absolute lion's den when it comes to the social media movement around Madeleine McCann, whose disappearance has been so widely covered. It spawns endless speculation, hate, conspiracy theories, and Julia sort of jumped into that lion's den, I think not quite realising what she was about to do. And of course, the algorithms are designed that suddenly they have a hot topic here that's creating a lot of division. It gets put front and centre and uh, she was in the middle of an inferno. Totally. And, and she's, you know, and, and I think it's right to, as, as we do in the podcast, ask her questions about her behaviour and the harm that that causes. But also at the same time, she's, you know, been harmed herself in this. And, and she's a real person, but you, you see how quickly her story was picked up and kind of ripped apart by different people on social media who, again, you know, the more outrageous things that they say, the more um, the more likes and views that they will get and so on and the traction builds. And, you right. know, I got in touch with all the social media companies about yeah. it and none of them had anything to comment directly. Certainly in Julia's case, I think she felt like her story just was taken out of her hands, really, and she was no longer able to um, have any control over that. And, and, and it was kind of after that that she decided to, to take a step back. Who are these gatekeepers of the Madeleine McCann story, uh, self-appointed online? A demographic even roughly? So um, there's a real mixture. There's quite a lot of, uh, of women that are very involved in, in the speculation. Um, uh, I spoke to a, a really interesting um, uh, professor, a, a guy called Dr. John Sinnott, who, who has spent an awful lot of time um, looking at the Madeleine McCann online movement and how ferocious it can be. Um, and I think what's important about it is it's very tribal. And um, so it's tended to split itself into two camps, the people who falsely believe that the McCanns, um, you know, contrary to the evidence available, had played some part in what happened um, uh, to their daughter. And then the people who are of the opposite view that kind of talk about all kinds of other speculation about what could have happened. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's important here that there's there's still no resolution to this case, although there's an active police investigation. There aren't definitive answers about what went on. And so into that gap, 
becomes conspiracy theory. Yes. It fills it up and people begin to speculate. And so these people kind of gather in, in big online groups. And um, the way I found Julia, because she'd taken down her I Am Madeleine McCann account um, and she changed the name of her personal account, so it was quite hard to find her. The only way I was able to find her account was actually a Facebook group that had been set up entirely to track her down, to basically post her Instagrams and say, look, this is what Julia's doing today and what she's doing tomorrow and here's what she's posted on her Instagram story. So there's a, an almost obsessive nature to, to, to the way that these people devour any development, anything that yes. happens. Um, and, and certainly when it came to this, um, uh, you know, given given that, given the hate and headlines that are triggered every time Kate and Jerry McCann say anything, um, and also given the active police investigation, um, you know, it's really hard for them to, to come out and deal with this kind of behaviour online. Uh, nonetheless, I did manage to speak to um, people who are close to the McCanns, who know the McCanns, who say they do accept Julia's apology for what happened and, and the, the situation that unfolded online. Um, mm. But it's this kind of never-ending cycle that's very difficult for everybody involved. The McCann family, they just have to stay offline entirely, don't they, to just protect themselves yeah. against this. Um, I'm amazed by the short timeline. I mean, how long between uh, Julia's claim on her Instagram account setting it up before it obviously being proved uh, impossible that she was Madeleine McCann on a DNA test? It's, it's quite short. Very short. So it was in February of last year that it really, really picked up steam. And then yeah. by April, so a couple of months, it was over. It was sort of a flash in the pan. It was done. And I think that's something that strikes me about it as well. You know, social media devours it. Users devour this story. And then it ends. And then everyone involved is kind of left on their own, damaged, hurt, harmed by what's unfolded. And there are no winners. Um, and, you know, in Julia's case, um, yeah, she now does acknowledge the harm that it caused and, and, and is and is and is apologetic. But also she was, you know, subject to this huge amount of hate, abuse, rape threats, people saying that, you know, a bounty on her head, all kinds of stuff, which she found incredibly hard to deal with. Um and part of why she wanted to speak to me, I think, was to be able to express her side and to explain how toxic social media can be. Um I guess the upside, the positives for her are that she's still got friends, fans, supporters who she's she's managed to to to, to keep up with after this who This is still on presence. still online, yeah. Still online, you know, um teddy bears with T shirts on saying you got this, uh, flowers, blankets, um and I think that there's something in a kind of weird way quite moving about the fact that you know, these people who perhaps initially followed her because they believed she was this this missing child have now, you know, continued to follow her and appreciate her for being Julia. And I think for her, it's really been a journey of, you know, questioning who she is, um, which, which, you know, she says that she has every right to do, but acknowledging that there's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that, and right. certainly the way that, that she did it. Um, in, in her view now wasn't the right way. On the path to redemption. And she was, uh, in conclusion, really, she was a vulnerable young woman who had questions yes. about her identity, essentially. Yes, and I think as well, it, 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 it tests all of us. You know, we like to think that um, we wouldn't get caught up in the social media sort of sensationalism and um, people sort of, you know, the... the, the very exaggerated content that people create. But actually, I think as human beings, we're often drawn to that, which is exactly how 
the social media companies work. They attract us in, they draw us in in that way. Um, but actually taking a step back and saying, hang on a second, let's try and exercise some empathy here. Let's try and understand. And that's not to say people aren't accountable for how they behave. They totally are. But it means that we can, I, I think, you know, I spend so much of my time really trying to highlight the harms and expose what goes on. But yeah. I think as a society, if we can all better understand why this stuff, ha stuff happens, it's less likely to happen again. Um, and that's, that's probably a good thing. It's kind of connected to the conspiracy theorists, people who end up on the extremes of the far right online. There is an issue in their lives, isn't there, that they've lost control over and, and their online personality has some semblance of control. Yeah, and I think to come back to that question of why, um, I often am much more interested in uncovering why people believe what they believe or why they do what they do rather than what they believe. I think yeah. when you get kind of um, caught up in the endless things that they can tell you, oh, I think this or I, I believe that, which are kind of extreme and contrary to the evidence, you're sort of, you don't really discover anything. Whereas actually when you try and understand why people have turned to this way of thinking, often legitimate concerns or questions and worries they have and the way that they've kind of social media has exploited those vulnerabilities and they've found themselves behaving in a way that they perhaps later regret. Um, um, I, I think that's just really important. And I think if we can all ask that question of why more often, mm -hmm. we can get to the truth of why this happened a little bit better. Because a lot of the time, it's about people feeling like they're not being heard or listened to. Um, and social media is the kind of quick way of being listened to, but often in a, in a way that triggers harm. Whereas actually, when you sit and have that conversation, I think people often say, oh, OK, yeah, I, you know, that's not the right way of going about it. And I appreciate that now. BBC disinformation and social media correspondent Mariana Spring on The Oliver Callan Show. The disappearance of Madeleine McCann was also discussed on Today with Colm O'Mungon. He spoke to Martin Brunt, Sky News crime correspondent, who was reporting today on claims by a British expat that he was aware of a plot to kidnap a child just a week before the disappearance of the toddler. Good morning, Colm. Uh, this latest twist involves a British expat who was aware of the plot. Can you tell us uh, of the alleged plot, should I say? Can you, can, you, can you give us the details of what you've learned and who you've been talking to? Yes, uh, indeed. This is an intriguing story from a man, uh, an Englishman, who was living in Portugal among a nomadic bohemian community in a remote part of southwest Portugal 17 years ago, a man called Ken Ralphs, uh, who's a former community worker and political campaigner in the UK. Um, he was living there in 2007, and among that community was Christian B., uh, the German drifter who is now the suspect for the Madeleine McCann disappearance. Um, but uh, they had a mutual friend, and the story that Ken tells tells me in my report today springs from an emotional late night conversation around a campfire in the woods with his friend who we are not naming for legal reasons. Um, according to Ken, uh, late into the night, his friend uh, suddenly broke down uh, and was crying. And when Ken asked him what the problem was, he told him that uh, Christian was trying to recruit him into a plot to steal a child from a rich family in Praia de Luge, uh, the, uh, the coastal resort, uh, not about 20 miles from where this conversation uh, took place. And according to Ken, he said, look, kidnapping a child and 
holding a child to ransom is going to get you into terrible trouble. The response from his friend was, this isn't for a ransom. Uh, Christian had told him that he had a couple lined up, a wealthy couple, but a childless couple, who wanted a child of their own and were prepared to pay a lot of money for it. So according to Ken Rouse, who's um, talking to me about this, that was the essence of the plot. Ken says that this was a, a week or so before Madeline disappeared. He was back in England when he heard of Madeline's disappearance and the hunt for her. He contacted British police. He then contacted Portuguese police. But he says that he doesn't feel that his information was taken seriously. Right. And wh- he why- since had... Sorry, Martin, do you mind me asking, why is it that, you know, there have been many exotic claims made in the, in the aftermath of Madeleine McCann's uh, disappearance, many of which I suppose have been quite distressing uh, to her, her parents. But why do you why do you find Ken Ralph's uh, credible to the point that you interviewed him? And, and what have you seen from him uh, to support the allegations he's making now? It's, it's difficult to um, assess the importance of uh, what Ken has been saying. But I'll tell you a couple of things, Colm. I do know that Ken has had some contact uh, uh, over the last three or four years with Scotland Yard detectives, um, you know, who are playing a part in in the investigation. Um, I can't decide whether or how seriously um, the investigators at Scotland Yard have taken Ken's information. But he did write out everything, his whole story, a story that he's told me several times um, without faltering over the last few months. He wrote it out in a very detailed statement and he sent it to the German prosecutor, um, Hans Christian Wolters. And I spoke to the prosecutor afterwards and he told me that he was interested in Ken's statement and he had passed it to uh, the German police who are essentially doing the investigation or leading the investigation on behalf of the German prosecutors. And Ken's background is of, in England, is of a a community worker, uh, a political campaigner, somebody who was caused great upset in his own life um, uh, three or four years before this all unraveled. Uh, He'd given information to police in Greater Manchester Uh, And they had inadvertently passed on his information, his details, to defence lawyers. And that led to Ken being offered a position in the witness protection scheme in the UK. Uh, But he refused to join that. And that's how he ended up uh, living in a camper van amongst that bohemian community uh, in the early noughties, uh, where he met Christian B and where he met uh, the friend that told him this story. So, you know, it's, it would be easy to dismiss this story. Um, but if you look at Ken's background, if you look at the interaction he's had with the various police forces, Portuguese, German and Scotland Yard, um, somebody within those organisations has listened and read his story. And it's difficult to know where it fits into the investigation, but it has become part of it. And does he have contemporaneous proof of those contacts he made uh, with the police uh, in the time he says he made them? Uh, I've seen um, more recent um, details of his interaction um, with Scotland Yard. And I do know from my own sources that they have, on a number of occasions, uh, had contact 
with Mr Ralphs. And what is the state of play with the investigation at the moment, Martin? Christian B, he's currently in his 40s. He's serving a prison sentence in Germany unrelated to that. It's for uh, sexual offences against an elderly woman in a flat near to where Madeleine McCann disappeared. But in terms of the progress by, by German prosecutors, in terms of Scotland Yard and indeed the local Portuguese police, are, are there any new leads they're working on that would bring any form of closure on this? We simply don't know, Colm. Um, when I talked to the German prosecutor, he says we are still working on the Madeleine McCann case. We have only one suspect, uh, Christian B, and we are hopefully nearing a position where we are going to charge him. But that hasn't happened. And he has been the firm focus of the German prosecutors since 2017. So clearly they feel they do not yet have... Uh, enough information, enough evidence to charge him. Now, Christian B, through his lawyer, uh, has firmly denied any involvement in the Madeleine McCann case. Uh, and indeed, he is going on trial in Germany next week on unrelated sex charges, which he also denies. So there's going to be a trial in Germany that will be spread over the next few months. Nothing to do with Madeleine McCann. And uh, at the same time, prosecutors will be pursuing the Madeleine McCann investigation. I think we're going to hear an awful lot more about Christian B, the suspect, um, for, for probably the first half of this year at least. Right. It's, it's hard to believe it's been 17 years since uh, Madeleine McCann disappeared and in a message on the official website ha set up to help her uh, they wrote last December that efforts to find her would continue with the same quote determination, commitment and vigour it's likely to be agonising for Kate and Jerry McCann who, who can't help but hope for new developments every time this case hits the headlines I, I think the McCann family with whom the media here have had no real direct contact for the last seven years, not since the 10th um, anniversary of Madeleine's disappearance when they, they did a, a one big interview. They, they haven't spoken publicly, or not at least to the media since, um, since then. But they must brace themselves for every twist and turn, for every report like mine that comes up. And particularly, um, they know that the suspect for their daughter's disappearance uh, is coming up on this uh, unassociated trial next week. Um, they still believe that there is a chance uh, that Madeleine is still alive. Um, for the Germans, this is a murder investigation. The prosecutor has said a number of times that he's investigating a murder and he believes that Madeleine is dead. And But he's not offered... Um, and the, you know nobody would be surprised at that. He's not offered publicly any of the evidence that he feels he has. So oh, unless Christian B is charged and put on trial, we won't know what the Germans are working on. Sky News crime correspondent Martin Brunt on Today with Colm O'Mungoin. Ray Darcy was talking to Dr Jacqueline Boyd about sleeping with your pets. Yes, you heard me right. But before that, he revealed the number one sought after breed of dog in 2023. But the most popular dog in the world in 2023, according to this particular poll, they're known for their loyalty, lively character and their ability to be great companions in smaller living spaces. The Chihuahua. The Chihuahua. Now, good afternoon, uh, Dr Jacqueline Boyd. Hello, how are you? Not too bad. Um, how many dogs do you have? 
<laughs> I have five. <laughs> right. Any of those breeds? I have Cocker Spaniels. All Cocker Spaniels? I do indeed, yes. Why the Cocker Spaniel in particular? Oh, gosh. Um, they're they're just lovely little dogs. They um big dogs and medium-sized bodies and active, outgoing, really optimistic. Just really good fun. And your your eldest, as in your first Cocker Spaniel, you got it in Ireland, I believe? Um, yeah, she's that, she's Irish bred. Yes, I spent a few years living in the Republic of Ireland and yeah, brought home an Irish bred Cocker Spaniel and his genes live on here. Right, great. Uh, now, you, you were asking the question in RT's brainstorm, should you share a bed with your dog or cat? You've done research on it. You're a se- senior lecturer in animal science in Nottingham Trent University. So this That's is correct, the science yes. of it. How many people do sleep with their cats and dogs before we get the the... The question to the question of should they? Well, it, it's fascinating. The, the The published research suggests that approximately half of all pet caregivers, dog and cat caregivers, are sleeping with their dogs and or their cats in bed. Um, so it's quite a high percentage. And I, I think if you speak to certain groups of either dog or cat people, you might find that percentage is even higher as well. So, so it's uh, quite a common thing. Are cat owners or dog owners more likely to sleep with their pets? The evidence suggests it's actually cat owners. Um, so it, it does seem to be that, that people who have cats tend to have their cats sleeping with them more than dogs. But that could be the difference between dogs and cats as well. Right. And whether, is this, whether you can tell cats where to go and tell dogs where to go. Is this under the covers or over the covers? Um, the reports suggest mostly over the covers, right. but about a fifth of people report their pets coming under the duvet and under the blankets and under the covers with them as well. And does the research that you've seen tell us if these people are in couples, in relationships or not? Um, it seems to be mixed. There definitely seems to be some link between single household demographics, so people living alone, um, actually potentially spending more close contact time with their animals, whether they're dogs or cats. Mm. Um, and that probably represents that that sort of demographic more generally, um, you know, that desire for kind of closeness and everything else. And historically, of course, you know, all animals were wild, weren't they? Uh, and we've domesticated them over the, the, the millennia. Um, uh, but they're getting more and more domesticated and probably uh, expect more and more from us. <laughs> There's probably something in that. Yeah, we, we've selectively bred, particularly dogs and cats, for particular characteristics. Um, they they kind of, I'm going to say they exploit us a little bit as well, but we've definitely selectively bred them it, to actually live with us and live in a, a human world and you know if you think particularly about some dog breeds they get cold so actually possibly coming under the covers makes perfect sense to that mm. dog you know rather than than sleeping outside for example right and who gets most from the relationship the dog and cat or the human <laughs> that's always the age-old question <laughs> when we think about animals you know can we actually fully understand what's going on in their head um, I would speculate, but again, probably with a pretty good evidence base that actually it's a mutual benefit that, that people and their pets are both benefiting from that, that close contact and that, that sort of intimate sleeping partnership, um, providing it's done well and, you know, dogs and cats aren't being disturbed and people aren't being disturbed in their sleep. 
and providing you are clean and taking appropriate sort of cleanliness. Right. Well, let's let's go to the pros and cons then. And 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 <laughs> one of the cons is that, isn't it? It's like dogs have fleas. Uh, dogs are out yeah. there. They're rolling around in fox poo and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> why do they do that? Oh, why why do they roll in fox poo? Yeah. Oh, it's you know it's it's the equivalent of us wearing. Chanel number no. five ah, or similar. You know, it's, <laughs> they think it's amazing. So Do they? Absolutely. Oh, God. <laughs> they must be really upset then when we get look horrified when they start to do it um, oh they absolutely do yes yeah, but yeah, you know yeah. they're, they're absolutely driven to do it it's it, to them it smells amazing so yes. okay so the disadvantages then of having your pet in your bed with you yeah i mean the, the, the major one or the, the kind of obvious one to begin with is probably sleep disturbance you know depending on the size of your 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 pet how much they're moving around, there is that potential for them to disturb your sleep. And, you know, we, we need some of the hazards of disturbed sleep. So that, that is one aspect. But then there's the potential sort of disease transmission risk, you know, and you, you've already mentioned fleas, you know, that's certainly possible. Our dogs and cats can carry fleas and they can hop onto us and bite us mm-hmm. and cause problems. Um, but I think one of the other things just to sort of recognise is the percentage of dogs that have actually had faecal source bacteria um isolated from their paw pads so you know about 86 percent of dogs uh-huh. studied in one particular study um had faecal bacteria on their paw pads and you know if you think you walk down the street you come into the house you certainly don't wear your shoes into bed mm. and yet our dogs are in effect doing that so that can be quite a significant challenge particularly if you are immunocompromised or you have other health issues you know that's that's not a great situation at all i suppose people listening are going well you know it's i've been doing it for years and i haven't come to any harm yet so there you go exactly <laughs> yeah. yes there will always be that yes yeah yeah because that is the case with a lot of things isn't it you know we 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 can we can get really um you know, I suppose overly careful and overly cautious about certain things. But if if you've been doing things a certain way for years and nothing has happened, you're probably safe enough, are you? Yeah, it, it's it's a really interesting point because, uh, and I, th- I think my thing is always, you know, you've got to advise people on best practice mm. and what individuals choose to do themselves because that works for them. That's absolutely their prerogative, you know, but certainly in terms of hygiene, you know, best practices that we we should be at least wiping our pet's feet and we should probably be washing our bed sheets, particularly if we're sharing them with pets, right. probably every three and four days, three to four days. Um, but, you know, evidence suggests that humans not even sharing their bed with their pets aren't washing their yes, pet sheets yes. that uh, regularly either. So. And who would be, which would be the cleaner as opposed to who? Which would be the cleaner, dogs or cats? Oh, that's a tough one, actually. Yeah. Um, I mean, cats are very good at self-cleaning. So cats, you know, groom themselves very extensively and they're very good at self-cleaning. So you, you might sort of intuitively think that cats are cleaner, for want of a, a better sort of mm. word to describe them. Um, but then dogs do self-groom as well. And we also tend to groom our dogs. And I suspect more dogs... Um, experience a groomer maybe experiencing bathing and their feet being toweled off than cats yeah i'd certainly know my own cats just walking in and out the house you, you know. you've cats or do- and dogs you- i've got cats and dogs oh right yes. cats and dogs how many cats have you got yes i have two cats right and we, we have to ask you now um you know personal question do you let your dogs and cats sleep with you 
The cats, no, absolutely not. They they predominantly sleep outside and they stay outside. Um, we, we live in a rural area, so you know it's it's their sort of territory. Um, one of my dogs is allowed upstairs. <laughs> just the one. But wow, special treatment. So, yeah, and and weirdly, it sort of is the uh, the rule in our house is the eldest dog is allowed to come upstairs. It's sort of special treatment. Right. So it's, it's kind it, of a, a bit of a hierarchy. It's like when the oldest, you know, the oldest of the children gets the, the room of their own. There's sort of a pecking it, order. Yeah. Sort of the same principle. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there's no science behind that at all. <laughs> no, it's just, no. <laughs> just uh, how it works for us. Uh, my dogs have always slept in my bed. Even when my husband was alive, he was a mad animal lover. I currently have four dogs sleeping on my bed. My dogs don't have oh, fleas lovely. and never did, says Marion. That's in capitals, the last sentence. Um, and Brian has been on from uh, Oregon in the United States of America. My hound spends part of the night under the cover by my feet. She acts as a wonderful... F- foot warmer or feet warmer and there's plenty of room on my king bed for her my wife my three-year-old son and myself so there's there's a busy bed a busy bed fabulous yeah um so i I suppose if you were asked and and to give a sort of a one word answer should you sleep with your pet yes (laughs) if you would like to (laughs) (laughs) they were all we were all sort of just waiting there there was that pause yes (laughs) I can't do one word answers. I'm a scientist. <laughs> well, now we have people all over the country going, the lady on the radio said yes. The lady said yes. You're like the, <laughs> you're like the man from Del Monte. Uh, so <laughs> well, you heard it from the expert, Dr. Jacqueline Boyd on The Ray Darcy Show. Well, Pancake Tuesday is just around the corner. It's next Tuesday and you've plenty of time to perfect your technique and get the right toppings. Agnes Boucher-Hayes, Home Economics Lecturer from Technological University of the Shannon, shared all her top tips on Today with Colm O'Mungoin. Well, you can't have pancakes without batters, Agnes. So Mm. walk us through the batter types. So there's three basic types. There's a coating batter, a drop batter. But what we're going to talk about specifically today is a pouring batter, which would give you all of your various types of pancakes and like your your crepe, uh, what would be called a funnel cake. They're they're a particular type. They're an American type of pancake, again, made from batter, an English muffin, a baby Dutch, a Belgian waffle, Irish drop scones, the list goes on. But for the essential crepe or the pancake that we would make in Ireland and we would be most familiar with that is sugar, milk and flour um, and a little bit of oil Okay, and what's and eggs. what's the aim? Nowhere flat uh, in order to be able to roll it up and, and eat it quickly presumably The whole thing about a batter is that it's you're trying to put ingredients together that you can cook in a in, in a quick way. So that's really what happens with a batter. So you will make, there are different thicknesses of batter. I've given some recipes and they will be on the website just with different types of batter. So we're looking at adding flour and then a liquid of some sort now, it depends and can change, depends on how thick or how how rich you want your batter to be. But essentially, you can use a water, a milk, depending if you want a raising agent, if you want it a little bit more puffy like you would with an Irish drop scone, um, that would, you, you would use a buttermilk there. But for what we're looking at, I would get, have a recipe of eggs, milk, flour, and that's essentially it. And then we'd have the add-ons that we could put in, like the sugar and a little bit of oil to cook it in. So what we're trying to do is keep it as flat as possible. So that means we don't want to incorporate any air. 
So that's why we would always allow a batter to sit for about 30 minutes minimum. You can make a batter the night before if you're under pressure. You can make a batter the night before. Allow that batter to sit in the fridge. If you find that it's too thick for the type of the consistency that you want, you can add a little bit extra liquid, whether it's water or um, milk. You can add a little bit extra and then you can not, you know, just shake a little bit of the air out. But the whole time what you're trying to do is not include air for a crepe. So you'd heat a pan and your pan is really important as well, Colm, when it comes to um, making a pancake. So, so give us your <clears throat> perfect pick of pan. A, a flat pan with a small with a small lip on the side. Now you'll see those prolifically at the minute. They're all on sale. I think since after, since the start of February, they've been on sale in supermarkets. So, but I particularly like a non-stick uh, pan, a coated pan, because that means that I can move my my batter around the pan, and it will cook in a more even in a more even and friendly way. So what I would do is I would heat oil. I would heat excess oil in the pan. So I'd have a cup or a jug of oil, pour it into the pan, and I would heat a good bit of oil in the pan, and then I would carefully pour that oil back into the jug. Now this is important because I want a small little bit of oil but I don't want if I have a lot of people waiting for pancakes you don't want to be waiting the whole time for the pan and the oil to heat up. So it just means you've got a more even cooking. So Um, an oil rather than butter? Oh I would use an oil rather than butter. Butter is lovely for a flavouring but I want something with a really high um, uh, temperature that I can get a good high temperature that won't burn and that will keep the, the, it will allow even cooking whereas butter because sometimes depending on whether, what type of butter you have there can be impurities in it that will actually the, the, it will have a lower um, temperature it, it won't go to the high temperature that I would like it to go to And you were talking about an oil presumably but not too <coughs> intrusive a flavour olive oil no, rapeseed no, oil out the door I something would, like sunflower oil is I would go with oil? the absolute like what, what whatever yeah you want just you want something that will move heat, that will allow heat to come through. You're not looking for a flavour. You know, like with the olive oils or the extra virgins, they would all have lovely flavours attached to them and are very useful in other types of cooking, but not when you're well, not when you're making pancakes, when you need to just get, when you need to get pancakes in and out of that pan. All right. That's really, and what you would do then, once you've got your pancake made and flipped, I would get a spoon of oil, only a dessert spoon, a small amount of oil, and just put it in the pan again. And because my oil is warm and my pan is warm, I can then start my pour my batter in and even out the batter to make the pancake. And and how much are you talk just just enough to cover the bottom of the pan is it so that it almost starts drying or cooking immediately yeah. on, on contact is and it? that's that's the whole principle of it it's the flat as a pancake so what you would do it, with this particular type of pancake that we're talking about a crepe you were actually looking for it to be flat so that it actually so that it cooks nearly uh, instantly when it hits the pan so you pour it into the center of the pan and then you will move you can move your pan around so remember the pan is warm is hot the oil is hot so you move Move the batter around the pan so that the bottom of the pan is evenly coated. And by the time that you've that done, once you're into the swing of it, by the time you've that done, you're nearly ready for flipping. All right. And and do you need to be experienced to be a flipper or are you encouraging people to give it a lash? <laughs> give it a lash, but make sure. Um, I, you know, I was a home economics teacher uh, in schools and... Pancake Tuesday used to terrify me because you had hot pans and hot oil and children flipping pancakes that could go anywhere. So, you know, it was a little bit of a nightmare. So I would always, obviously, you know, caution, make sure that the batter in the pan is dry, that it's not going to 
you know, that if it hits the floor, that it's not going to create a slip. Um, make sure that there isn't too much oil in the pan because you don't want people getting hot oil on their skin. That's very, okay. that's very sore. Right. And you don't want that. But uh, I would say have a go with the flipping. And remember as well, when it comes to pancakes, the first one or two, in my experience, aren't always the best ones. It's the ones that come later on when you're into the swing of it and all of the temperatures are working and you've got your pan primed properly. Right. Those that, ones, that becomes those the better. They're those the, ones they're are the delicious. For the, for the dog or the chef. So in yes. terms of topping them to make them the subsequent ones more palatable, what flavours are you talking about? Oh, I'm, I'm again, we're going to split the country here. I am lemon and sugar and that's it. Not even a bit of butter. I'm, that's, that, that was my, that's, that, that's my love. But you can put anything on it. But remember, pancakes don't always have to be sweet. They can be savory as well, so you can make a bechamel sauce, like a chicken and uh, chick, you know, a chicken and a rich wine sauce. You can put that. Make sure it's good thick bechamel. You can roll the, put a little bit of the sauce or the mixture into the middle. Roll the pancake and bake it. Lovely as well. So you can put anything you want. As well as that, we know, Cullum, that a lot of people eat pancakes now for breakfast. So, I mean, the sky's the limit with that. When you know, when it comes to it, depends on how adventurous you want to get. But it's the the sugars and the sweetness that you just, I suppose, a little note of caution, you know, if you went right. absolutely bonkers with it. Right. And there are crazy ones. Another uh, batter favourite, Agnes, moving swiftly from the sweet to the savoury, is uh, Yorkshire pudding. Uh, do you favour singles or big ones? Well, I like the single one, but I think it's very important when you're making your Yorkshire pudding, again, that you just, there's there's a couple of little, just little nuances. Make sure your fat in your muffin tin is really hot. Make sure it's, except, and I would use um, a beef dripping. You can use oil as well with this, uh, but the beef dripping gets to a really hot temperature. But again, uh, on a note of caution column just put your muffin tin on a baking tray to put it into the oven it just will hopefully you know there won't be any accidents but if there is a spill it goes onto the tray and not onto the floor or onto the person but as well as that when you're making your Yorkshire pudding you can after about 20 minutes open the door and allow the steam out because you now want the little bit of crispiness on the outside and then continue to cook them for about five minutes. That's a lovely tip as well. But with Yorkshire puddings, they're a very simple, straightforward batter again, but they add a, a, a lovely... Um, a lovely different texture and note to a meal and I suppose from you know people like to fill the Yorkshire pudding with the um, gravy. with gravy yeah, and have it yeah, and, and dip away in there and eat it. Hmm, pancakes with gravy. I'm not sold on that one. Agnes Boucher Hayes on Today with Colm O'Mungon. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. But as always, if you'd like to listen back to any of your favourite shows, you can do that on the RTE radio app. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care. Mm-hmm.